Welcome to Modern Aikidoist Podcast. Please help by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast if you're watching this on YouTube or BitChute. These are all free and help out a great deal. Word of mouth is how shows like this reach more people who are interested. Another way you can support this podcast is by way of a PayPal tip jar. You can leave a donation of any amount you like or set up a monthly donation just like Patreon or Subscribestar. Only I don't make you pay for my content in order to hear it. I only ask for your support. There's a link in the description. I sincerely appreciate your interest and support. In today's podcast, I'm going into a subject somewhat related to the last episode regarding different types of violence. In this one, I'm going to discuss a topic which is often stated about there being no rules in a street fight. This statement is often made to marginalize and even disrespect sport fighters, which to me is not justified. I think the idea is that the presence of rules for safety somehow remove the effectiveness of a sport martial art. There's a tiny bit of truth to this, but there's a lot about that idea that is just not true. So what is true, what is an exaggeration, and what is false? Before I get into the specifics of the arguments we always hear, I want to go to a higher altitude, so to speak, and discuss the concept of rules in warfare or combat in general. That is, the abstract concept of there being some kind of limitation on what participants will or won't do when it comes down to fighting, when everything is on the line. We've all heard the phrase, all's fair in love and war. But what defines fair? When it comes to fighting, are there any rules? I suggest that there are, and they are not officially codified anywhere, but we have a basic understanding of them. Something profound happens when these rules are violated, but I'll get into that in a little bit. The first thing we need to discuss is that there are different types of fighting, even within the realm of fighting for real when the stakes are high. The cause of the fight is a crucial element to what the fight will and won't entail. You could say that the rules of a fight are influenced by the cause of the conflict itself. That sounds a little vague, so let me provide a couple of examples to describe it better. Let's take one fight. A young man is out with his girlfriend at a party and another young man makes advances on her. The boyfriend views these advances as a threat. He gets angry and tells the man to back off. Let's say that the flirt decides that he doesn't want to back off, either out of arrogance or intoxication, so he stands up to the boyfriend. Perhaps he tries to display he is more manly in an attempt to impress the woman. This sort of stuff happens all the time. The hostilities escalate into a fight. Neither really want to kill the other person. They just want to show that they are courageous enough to engage in a fight and that they are not cowards. The flirt just wants to prove he's a tough guy, probably because he has low self-esteem from being alone in front of a crowd of people. The boyfriend doesn't want to look weak by letting another man poach his girlfriend in front of everybody. This is a kind of social violence and is not uncommon. What are the rules in this fight? Usually the goal is to get the other guy to quit. These fights tend to be more big displays and usually very little injury is sustained. Black eyes, split lips, and minor cuts are typical, and sometimes even these don't happen. It's more of a tussle than a full beatdown. The reason fights like these are not serious is that the stakes are pretty low. Fights over social standing can feel intense, but they are not where weapons emerge and people end up bitten with eyes gouged out or dead, usually. Then there is the high-intensity fight, where lives are on the line. These are comparatively rare, and when they happen, it's a whole different level of threat. This is where it's clear that serious injury or worse is a likely outcome. It is fights like these where all the stops come out. 
The first rule, if you want to use that term of a fight, is giving your opponent the chance to defend himself. Most social violence, like the boyfriend-girlfriend scenario, starts with direct confrontation. It's not an ambush. The flirt is notified of his error and told to back off. This is kind of a rule. The boyfriend doesn't return from the men's room to see the flirt hitting on his girlfriend and approaches from behind to cut his throat. Why not? You could say that that's against the rules, but what rules exactly? It's just how things tend to be in most civilized society. The situation doesn't warrant the use of deadly force. I'm not talking about the concern over being charged with murder, although that is a factor. Our basic human programming doesn't include such irrational responses, at least with fairly normal human beings. Psychopaths are a different matter entirely. Fortunately, there are relatively few of them around, and the ones which are that out of control are usually removed from society very swiftly. The rule for the confrontation is to give notice and tell the flirt to get lost. If the situation escalates and the fight ensues, it really goes only as far as obtaining a surrender or submission. Causing serious damage is uncalled for. I'd say you could call that a rule. So how is that rule enforced? The idea that if you unleash your inner monster in such a situation, your girlfriend might not be your girlfriend anymore and those who watch you turn into a beast will likely want to have nothing to do with you anymore. The incident would likely become quite the gossip and your reputation may be ruined, even if you felt you were in the right. This is natural, and these are an ingrained set of rules to human society. They have nothing to do with legislation or what is legal. There are fights where there are few rules. The best example might be a prison fight. The social structure in the prison system is quite different than normal society, but there still is a structure there. When fights happen in the hardcore prison population, the stakes are usually much higher. There's a lot to this, and I'm not going to go into the intricate details of the social structure in the prison system, but suffice to say that prison attacks and fights are far more serious than young men fighting over a girl at a party. As the stakes in a fight increase, one of the first rules which gets ignored is giving notification that a fight is coming. Instead, you ambush the target when he doesn't see you coming. A successful attack is almost guaranteed. Ambushes like this are seen as cowardly, and those who do them as vicious and ruthless. There's a great deal to this aspect which is woven into human behavior. When nations go to war, there's a declaration of war. Why? Why not just surprise attack a nation that you have hostility towards? Of course, this happened in history, although it is considered poor form. Two notable examples are the surprise invasion of Poland which launched World War II in Europe, and the attack on Pearl Harbor which created a wave of hatred towards the Japanese by the American public. So why bother? Who cares if your enemy hates you or not? It is war after all. If you're going to engage in war or conflict, why not go all the way and be as vicious and ruthless as possible? Wouldn't that terrify your enemy and frighten them into submission? What if you proved through your actions that you were entirely without restraint and showed yourself to be an absolute monster? Imagine what would have happened had the U.S., during the Gulf War, taken Iraqi prisoners and chained them to the front of their tanks. At first, one might say that opposing forces would not fire upon U.S. tanks for fear of hurting their fellow soldiers. How would the U.S. public have felt about hearing of such behavior? War and conflict requires a certain level of support by the people of a nation. If it is too grotesque and monstrous, people will be outraged, resulting in turmoil and unrest at home. We in the U.S. saw this during the Vietnam conflict a great deal. 
The reports of objectionable behavior by the U.S. forces in the Middle East also created a lack of support for the wars there. Human beings have a natural resistance to violence. It seems this resistance is part of our human nature. It is a deep subject trying to describe why and how it works, so I'm not going to go into great depth about it here. It is true that normal human beings are not vicious or violent people by nature. The exceptions are psychopaths or those with mental problems of some kind. Those people exist, but they are not the norm. Humans are not the only animals who must be taught how to fight. Almost every predator species has some kind of mentoring to the young by the adults to teach them how to hunt. Wolf pups in the wild are taught how to bite, and even dogs must be trained how to bite effectively during police and attack dog training. One might think it is a natural trait for them, but it is not. Their instincts might have them able to nip at someone or something in defense, but it takes guidance for them to learn how to do it effectively. To wrap up the abstract concept of being ultimately brutal and vicious, it's just not part of normal human conflict. Anger and aggression are ugly and intense, but almost always stop well short of the level of viciousness and ruthlessness which is sickening. So how does this play out in a fight? What are the limits should we be attacked or engage in a fight? Will we be willing to go all the way into brutality with the intent of killing our opponent, or should we? The level of fear is a factor, and I think even more so are the particular circumstances. The human brain is able to quickly assess situations. If faced with a child going through a tantrum, who is yelling and screaming and waving their fists around, you're probably going to realize that this is a pretty low level of threat and act accordingly. On the other hand, two adults try to grab you in a dark parking lot and attempt to throw you into their van, you may realize you could be fast approaching the end of your life. Against these two, you would probably not hesitate to do everything you can to keep from getting abducted. Nothing would be off the table for you to use, and I don't think you would be wrong in doing so. The two most common attacks which are brought up to describe the viciousness of a fight are kicking someone in the groin and poking the eyes. That's only a start, though. There are quite a few others. There are things most people don't think of, but those who have been exposed to the most savage realms of humanity are familiar with. Things like clawing, gouging, ripping, or slapping ears. Also, biting. Using weapons falls into this category, too. You could consider these rules of a sort. If you get into an argument with someone and a scuffle ensues, the rules, as it were, kind of dictate that neither of you are going to be poking each other's eyes, kicking in the groin, or pulling out a weapon. That's just going too far. Where things separate from our normal understanding of rules is that there's no one there to enforce them. If within that scuffle your opponent breaks the rules and pulls out a knife, the fight changes tone entirely. There is no longer a low level of fight. You are in a fight for your life. It's like a switch gets turned on and the stops get pulled out. Imagine you get into a scuffle with someone who is angry, and it really doesn't matter how it started. There are heated words and you somehow both end up on the ground wrestling around. You realize that your attacker isn't trying to strike you or hurt you, but you are definitely in a physical conflict. Perhaps you are experiencing discomfort because he fell on you and you're getting incidental knocks such as with knees and elbows. Nothing serious, and you're not enjoying it, but you're not in severe pain either. As you continue to grapple around, neither of you are getting much of an advantage. Your attacker is getting upset that he isn't prevailing. And because he's really angry and wants to, he decides to up the ante. He starts grabbing for your throat, groin, and starts laying in heavy strikes on you. You realize something changed. The level of danger just increased. Really, 
the rules changed. You realize that the situation is more serious than you perceived before. As such, you have to change your tactics and mindset. If you don't, you might get overwhelmed and even hurt. There are still limitations of how far you're willing to go, and these could be considered rules. Maybe you have a knife on you, and you don't feel it's quite to the point of needing to take his life. Then, something else happens. Now he pulls out all the stops and goes to gouge your eyes and starts trying to bite you. Maybe he pulls out a weapon. You realize that this is the ultimate fight and you are tangling with a wild animal. This is where any rules disappear. Your instincts for survival will kick in. Or they should. You will do anything and everything to escape or neutralize the threat against you because your life is on the line. Imagine being underwater and the fear of drowning kicks in. You will fight with everything you have to get to the surface and get air. Obviously, you won't fight like that if you don't have to. Fights are not all equal in intensity, and for lower-level violent encounters, there are certain inherent limits on our behavior. These can change in an instant as the circumstances change. In the end, there are not necessarily rules in a fight as we think about them from the standpoint of sport fighting. There are rules of sorts which are at play even in real-world violence. The one last thing I want to mention is in regards to being dismissive of sport fighters for their training, not including practice of techniques which are illegal. This criticism is sometimes implied or even outright stated by traditional martial artists as they try to imply that their training is superior because it's not limited only to sport legal techniques. There is a sliver of validity to this claim, but nowhere near enough to justify the arrogance behind it. The part that is true would be best described by a boxer who has no experience in wrestling and being taken down by a wrestler. The boxer is completely out of his element, and without experience in grappling, he will likely be overcome. That is, provided the wrestler successfully gets past the boxer's potent offense. I think that's where the validity of the original claim of training for illegal techniques end. In reality, a vast majority of traditional martial artists do not train with anywhere near the same intensity that sport fighters do. You cannot compare a boxer not knowing wrestling to justify the idea that a boxer could not use an eye poke, for example. The boxer trains all the mechanics necessary to deliver a lightning-fast eye poke. That includes the movement and coordination to deliver it in a very effective way. Would a boxer need to practice eye pokes in particular to deliver a good one? Not really. It would help a little bit, but all the work he did on his footwork, movement, and reading an opponent's movement would make landing that eye poke really easy for him. The same thing holds true for kicking the groin. Any athlete from just about any sport you care to mention would have no problem delivering a solid groin kick. They may not be able to read an opponent with tremendous accuracy, but this attack is not sophisticated and can be delivered quite easily. The same would hold true for almost all of the attacks and techniques which are illegal in competition. A sport fighter is well equipped to do almost all of them, even though he doesn't practice them. If he is involved in a high-intensity fight without rules, I would bet that the self-imposed limitations of techniques would disappear and he would have little or no problem executing them. The idea that training under a set of rules is a severe limiter in a fight with no rules is just not valid enough to be argued as it is. There are a few instances which warrant it, but for the most part, it's a poor argument. What do you think? Please share your ideas in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube, or go to the Facebook group Aikido the Martial Side and post a comment. The Spirit Aikido online program is now live. Subscribers get access to video training and mentoring to techniques and training methods that I've adopted from other martial arts to make my Aikido more practical. There's a link in the description section.
I invite you to check it out. I always enjoy hearing from listeners of the show, whether through comments or questions. Thank you all for sharing your interest. Enjoy your training.